Welcome to the AR Show, where I dive deep into augmented reality with a focus on the technology and uses of smart glasses and the people behind them. I'm your host, Jason McDowell. Today's conversation is with Phil Greenhalf. Phil is the Chief Technical Officer at Wave Optics, a leading designer and manufacturer of diffractive waveguide optics. This is a key optical component many in this industry believe can deliver the sort of form factor that can enable the mass adoption of AR smart glasses. After more than a decade as a professor of electronic engineering, Phil shifted his focus to the commercial world. He's co-founded two technology companies, one of which was acquired by Daiquiri for its expertise in augmented reality electronics and optics. He then served as the SVP of engineering, responsible for Daiquiri's research and development. For the last year and a half, Phil has been the CTO of Wave Optics, focused on material sciences and developing waveguides and projector systems with higher fields of view. In this conversation, Phil shares his perspective on the importance of waveguides in creating eyeglass-thin smart glasses and what sets the Wave Optics approach apart. He talks about his background as an educator and some experiences as an entrepreneur. We also get into the science of combiner optics and the many technical trade-offs necessary to make a great experience in a head-worn device. We go on to talk about his perspective on micro-displays that fit well with waveguide optics, as well as his broader perspective on the market. He also gets into some of the successes and lessons learned at Daiquiri. Phil starts by sharing some exploits he had as an amateur pilot. Let's dive in. Phil, how did you get started importing military aircraft from the former Soviet Union? Well, there is a story, and it's uh, it's actually related uh, right to the present day, although it actually happened uh, about 20, 21 years ago. Going back uh, that far, 21 years, I was uh, teaching at a university in the UK and uh, fortunate at the time that university academia was such that there was sufficient time to have extracurricular interests. And one of those interests that I had was importing ex-military Russian jet trainers um, into the UK. At the time, it was an activity that was picking up a lot of pace, both in the UK and the US, because it was around about the time that some of the, uh, the Soviet states were becoming independent and the, uh, the, the governance of these new states were looking to f- novel ways of raising revenue. And one of the things that they found, particularly in the Ukraine, was that they had huge stocks of ex-military aircraft. And uh, some of these aeroplanes were, were actually within the realms of private pilots being able to fly them from a, um, a demand point of view and, uh, and a difficulty point of view. So it started in, in America, first of all, and there was a, a stream of these airplanes that got imported into America. And um, I, was, uh, I was a flying instructor at the time, uh, teaching people to get the private licenses, the private certificates. And uh, one of my students uh, said, did I fancy importing one of these, uh, the, these Russian airplanes? And I'd never heard of them up until, up until that point. So we dug into it and a little, little bit more, and in the end, wandered off to Estonia, uh, where I received training and taught to fly one of these, these, these aircraft, and uh, uh, ferried it back to the United Kingdom and started flying it. And it was uh, very different, caught a huge amount of attention in the British press, and uh, it was sufficiently interesting and sufficient demand for these aeroplanes, because they're relatively cheap compared to the, to the Western aircraft, that uh, started importing them. I set up a business with this student, and we probably imported six or seven of them over the years. And one of them was, um, was actually to David Hayes, who is now the 
chief executive of Wave Optics. So going back 21 years was how I met him by actually selling him one of these uh, ex-Russian military jets. And uh, we became friends and flew for most of the summer in, well, gosh, what would it be, 1998, something like that. And he offered me a job and uh, in his IT company and I decided I was going to leave academia, uh, left a tenured post um, as, a, as a university professor and went working for an IT company, not knowing anything at all about IT, to be honest. But uh, yeah, so that was a, a link for something 21 years ago to something that's still uh, still relevant today. We've, we're still working together now and still flying. That's so cool. I imagine 10 years before that, what you were doing would have been a spy, like the story of a spy novel, right? You're going to some former Soviet bloc country and investigating this technology and then ferreting it away to the UK. Right? Well, the, wor the worrying thing is actually after, 10 years after we started, maybe 15 years after I started importing them, our intermediary in Estonia, he was actually arrested for spying in, uh, and was in, uh, was in a, a Soviet, um, well, I should say a Russian jail for, for about two years. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, a bit scary thinking what well, might have been going on and happening at the time, but certainly there's sufficient suspicion uh, from the Russians that some, he'd been up to some military mischief yeah. around about the time that we, we, were, uh, we were involved. Yeah, very cool. And the attraction of this particular set of aircraft was because it was relatively cheap. The Russians, the former Soviet Union countries in particular, were just looking for some bit of revenue. And so they're selling these assets off to the highest bidder, whatever they can get for them. Yeah, that, that's right. That They were typically being sold around the twenty dollars to $30,000 mark. So they were, at the time, less than, less than a Cessna 172, typically. And in the case of the L-29 Delphin, which was the trainer that the Russian and a lot of other Soviet bloc countries were using at the time in the 60s, was a very straightforward airplane to, uh, to fly. In fact, when it had its test flight in the UK, the... Civil Aviation Authority test pilot said that it was so simple to fly, it would never have been accepted into a training environment at the time in, in the UK and in America, because it was just too easy. It didn't exhibit some of the characteristics that the more advanced fighters would have with high wing loadings and uh, more aggressive handling. <laughs> too easy. <laughs> Rarely yeah. is that a you know, problem for any sort of product, but I guess it makes sense here in this sort of training environment, you're trying to train for a different sort of environment. Yeah, precisely. It has to at least show some some mild characteristics of, uh, of handling deficiencies that the uh, higher wing loading sweat wing fighters of the of the time had. That uh, that it was around about the mid seventeen time that these trainers were um, were being being used, and the the, the mid fifteen and the mid seventeen were very early sweat wing fighters and had some really quite nasty handling tendencies. Very awesome. That's very cool. And as you noted, one of those early buyers of this aircraft was the current CEO of Wave Optics. And prior to your, I guess, your embarkation into the world of for-profit industry and, and commercial application of some technologies, you were a tenured professor and love to maybe kind of tap into some of those things there and explore with you some of the challenges that we have in creating this sort of mass market see-through smart glasses that we all imagine. And that kind of biggest, longest pole in the tent right now is the display and the optics side of things. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can give us a bit of a science lecture maybe on the optics side of the problem. 
Can you walk us through what needs to happen to all of those photons that are coming out of the display system in order for them to become ultimately useful and make their way into our eyes in a pair of smart glasses? Yeah, sure. I think it's worthwhile, first of all, just stating in simple language what the challenge actually is. And it then becomes quite obvious, really, that this is a really, really tough problem. Uh, because when you think what you actually have to do is to, we need to create a, a, something that is totally clear that you can place in front of your eye. So it needs to be lightweight. It needs to have a very wide field of view from the point of view of the image that it relays into the eye that's computer generated. It doesn't, it mustn't obstruct the real world ideally, and it should consume minimal power, yet it needs to generate an image that's bright enough to compete with uh, full sun daylight. And you know anybody would argue that if you put all of all those attributes together in one device, it's a pretty tall order. Um, and it's safe to say at the moment, there's no, there's no technology available that can simultaneously achieve all of, all of those features. So it's, it's really a matter of trading off the particular attributes and, and benefits of our own individual technology um, to the best that's, that, that's available and adapt that technology uh, to a particular application. Maybe you can dig into that just a little bit more. I think the, maybe the, the basis that some listeners might have is the pair of sunglasses, the pair of regular optical glasses that they wear, which are transparent, and they do allow light from the outside world, and they are lightweight. What's extra challenging about redirecting that light from that display within that type of optics that people are more familiar with? It comes down to a number of things. The, the first and the most fundamental is that you need to get the light generator, whatever the technology is that, that you use. It obviously has to be kept away from, the, from the, the line of sight of the real world. So it isn't something that you can just place in front um, centrally on the, um, on the pupil, for example. It needs to be displaced um, either to um, above or to the side of the, um, of the head. But that then generates the, uh, the secondary problem. Somehow you need to transport the image that the light engine is creating laterally, either downwards or across, and then redirect that image into the eye so that all of the wave fronts that are originally created by the light engine are all preserved in a way that you maintain uh, the correct balance of luminance and the correct balance of sharpness and color uniformity. And it's, uh, it's, it's tough to get all of that in, in a single optic. It's very tough. You just kind of described a moment ago some of these attributes that people use to measure the goodness, the quality of the sort of combiner optic that allows you both to see the outside world unobstructed, as well as redirect that light, whether it's from the top or the side, with all of that image clarity and color into the eye. And some of those things you'd mentioned were this notion of transparency or transmissivity, as some call it, the kind of the field of view, but kind of taking full advantage of that digital image that's being created, the efficiency of how well that's done, the how clear that image is, both image from the outside world, as well as the image from the artificially created one from the display, the color uniformity, luminescence, uh, brightness. There's a bunch. Are there any others that are important, or which of those do you consider to be the most challenging or important of the mix? Well, you very succinctly actually mentioned most of them. There are a few others. Um, the usual one, uh, if we get a, a new inquiry from, from a customer, usually the request pivots around field of view, rightly or wrongly. And there's, there's different schools of thoughts now about whether what field of view 
is required, whether it needs to be super wide to, and to, to completely envelop the whole natural world or whether it needs to be smaller and just occupy a central or maybe an offset version of the, um, of, of the, of the site, of the real world. But it always usually comes down to field of view, what field of view uh, that the customer wants. And then once the field of view is set, there are a number of other requirements that then emerge, like, for example, how many individual waveguides are required to, to sustain that field of view. So if the field of view is relatively narrow, it might only require one waveguide. If it's moderate, it may need two. And if it's um, ultra-wide, ultra, ultra wide, it may need three individual waveguides to get one to carry each individual colour. So there are some instant technological implications of a stated and, and, and required field of view. Once that field of view has been suggested, though, then all of those other things that you've mentioned, together with a key one, which is the size of the eye box. The size of the eye box is the it, it's a, it, effect. It's a two-dimensional rectangle over which, if you move the near eye display that the eye would still be able to see the full range of angles so they'd be able to see the full image without any cutoff and if the eye box is large what that means is that it is adaptable to different physiologies so people's eyes are different distances apart uh, typically the world average is around 63 millimeters but it could be substantially smaller than that or substantially higher um, if you have a large eye box, it's possible with one pair of glasses to be able to accommodate a much greater range of the population than if the eye box was, was, was smaller. So eye box is one of the next things that comes along. Okay, with that field of view, what eye box can we have? That then influences the size of our output grating, which in turn influences the size of the of the of the, of the waveguide which in turn influences the efficiency it influences the cost of the waveguide because using our replication process the bigger the waveguide is then the less of them that we can get on a particular size of wafer so the unit price goes up and all of these trade-offs are all pulling usually in different directions and uh, our job is to guide the customer about what is achievable in all of this multiplex of different trade-offs and get the best blend of them so that they get the best outcome for their particular product and what it's aimed at. Yeah, iVox is a really interesting one that we don't talk much about, but if anybody's had the chance to experience the North Focals, which is a mm -hmm. remarkably small form factor device, they really optimized yeah. for that, but the size of that iBox on that particular display is tiny. If your eye isn't perfectly lined up, you're not going to see much of anything out of there. Which kind of, I guess, if you have an old pair of binoculars or even a telescope, it's kind of a similar sort of experience. If your eyes aren't perfectly lined up behind the image, you're not going to see anything. Well, yeah, exactly. The, the, the North system, because it's based on a, on a scanning technology rather than a pupil-forming light engine, the beam width is only maybe a millimetre, a couple of millimetres across. So... In the absence of any pupil replication or any other form of, um, of expansion, eye box expansion, your eye really does have to be centered very precisely with the, uh, the reverse path that the scanning engine, um, uh, the, the origin of the, of the beam from the engine has. And, and, and that's why, yeah, it's, it's another trade-off. The form factor is very, very small, but because 
the, the field of view is very small and there's no expansion of the, uh, the beam, then yeah, you can get a small form factor. But you know, I've heard unofficially that they may need as many as between 70, 80 different SKUs, different variants to cope with the styles that they've advertised together to cope with the general physio- uh, physiology of people. Yeah, that's the huge trade-off there. Small form factor, yeah. but it has to be very precisely tuned to each wearer. That's right. On the area of field of view, do you have a strong opinion about what makes sense? Is smaller useful enough, kind of given the, the core use cases that people are leveraging smart glasses for today? Or do we really need a large field of view for these things to gain broader acceptance? This is an interesting question. Um, I think, personally, for information-based symbology displays, then a relatively small field of view of 25, 30 degrees diagonal is actually quite decent, is quite adequate. If you want content that's a little bit more involved, personally, I would say the sweet spot is about 40 degrees diagonal. We have some devices that we showed in prototype form at CS last year that we'll be showing in form factor um, this year at uh, CS and other exhibitions. And looking at the field of view of those devices, which is substantially greater than 40 degrees, I personally find it a little bit overwhelming. It, it, it envelops the whole, the whole of the real world. And sometimes it's, um, I, I do wonder if, if a full size display such as that is quite what people want. But there are a good number of our customers that have done an awful lot of investigation into this stipulate that, yeah, a wide field of view is, is, man, is mandatory. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out over the next couple of years. It certainly makes sense it within will. the world of virtual reality where you're completely covering, blocking out the rest of the real world and want to envelop yourself, take yourself away from your current spot and put yourself in this digital recreation, digital world. It makes sense that you want to have a larger field of view. But I am with you and that I'm not 100% convinced that we need, at least in the next many years, next several years, a truly wide field of view for these glasses to be useful. And I'm not convinced that completely blocking out the real world with lots of bright digital imagery while engaging with the real world is desirable. I agree. I think that there may well be some sociological and possibly safety implications of ostensibly having a device that's supposed to be used in the real world that is so potentially distracting from that real world that we hear all the time about people excessively using smartphones as pedestrians and causing accidents to themselves and others. I, I think it will be so much worse if you had a pair of glasses with that density of information on them. But uh, these are these are things that will get worked out. And you know, over time, my job at the moment is just to provide displays that can accommodate those needs if uh, if we have to. Yeah, if they're required. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to see this breadth of experimentation that tries to leverage sure. wider field of view, and we'll see what comes of it. So the wave optics, optics technology of choice is a type of diffractive waveguide, which we'll get into in just a second. But perhaps before we dive in there, you can lay a bit more of a groundwork around how to think about the broader set of primary approaches for designing combiner optics. What are the different kind of categories and, and what do you think are some of the key trade-offs between each of these main categories of combiner optics? As you said, there are a number of alternatives and it's self-evident that, of course, my preference is diffractive waveguides. There are alternatives. In the waveguide camp, there are reflective waveguides where 
there are embedded reflectors, uh, plane mirror reflectors um, with particularly um, uh, complicated coatings that are effectively laminated into different uh, pieces of glass. There is freeform optics where there is a, a device that is very efficient actually. Um, it's, a, it's usually two pieces of optics that are laminated together. The first uh, is used to convey the image often from a, a relatively low power panel such as, as a, an OLED panel uh, into the eye and it does that very well. It does it over a, um, a quite a decent field of view and it does it efficiently. It distorts the real world, so then you need to have a compensating lens on the uh, on the forward-facing uh, front of that lens, and that overall you may well end up with an optic that could be ten to fifteen millimeters in thickness. And for a lot of organisations, that simply is isn't acceptable from a aesthetic point of view. They don't want a a lump of glass that's twelve to 14 millimeters thick in front of in front of the eye um, not just from an aesthetic point of view but also from mass as well that if you have a, a an optic and you need to provide it with a particular size eye box these devices don't have any form of expansion pupil expansion so the optic tends to be about the size of, of, of the eye box itself and so does the light engine so if you want a a 15 millimeter eye box, the size of the optic is getting quite chunky and so is the light engine. So, but it has some great attributes, not, not least is the, the efficiency of them is pretty decent. And once they're made, they're relatively cost effective to make as well. So I would say that those are the two primary categories. There are, there are some others uh, coming along, pin mirror types, which are interesting but I think the jury's out with me about how they ever make them efficient enough to be uh, to be the true to have real true utility but they have the one big benefit certainly non waveguide form that they can form images over much deeper focal planes than any type of waveguide inherent waveguide device can whether it's diffractive or whether it's uh, reflective but certainly overall if you trade the balance off of all of the different attributes I think that diffractive waveguides are the way ahead and I think that view is probably supported by the only two public data points that we've got um, and of course that's Microsoft and, and Magic Leap who must have put a huge amount of brain power into the, the choice of a combiner technology, added up all of the merits and demerits and chose to go with diffractive waveguides, the pair of them. So. Um, and I strongly suspect uh, a lot of uh, the other organisations that have got similar similar plans are, are doing the same. I've not heard of anybody mass adopting a reflective waveguide nor a um, a free space type of combiner using uh, free forms. Where does birdbath fit in this? Is that kind of subclassified under the free form optics as you were describing them? Yeah, that's a good question. Birdbath is, I suppose. It isn't necessary in that category, although it may well have freeform surfaces in the uh, in the reflector. Um, Birdbath are relatively simple structures. In fact, um, in in my previous job with Dacry, we 
we evaluate every single type of display technology you could possibly think of. And, and Birdbath actually is one of the simplest. But again, it was dismissed very early on simply because aesthetically it was it was just too big. It was it, it just didn't lend itself necessarily to a, um, a small compact form factor uh, device. These are the trade-offs. There's no clearly easy yeah. answer here. But after yeah. evaluating, as you noted, Microsoft and Magic Leap have both opted to go with diffractive waveguides for the current generation of devices. And that's yeah. where you believe the clearest path to creating the best kind of set of uh, best experience, given all the trade-offs, lies. But Wave Optics isn't the only maker of diffractive waveguides. What's unique about your approach? Well, what's unique about our approach, and this applies to the other open market vendors like Displix, as well as the, for the better word, closed market vendors like Microsoft and Magic Leap, who are only providing waveguides for their own relatively small um, group of, of products. For us, it's our aim is to be the, the, the best open market provider of waveguides in, in the world. And by open market, I mean that we can design waveguides uh, in a way that's rapid and in easy enough that we can adapt them for any particular use case or purpose that any of our customers come uh, to us with. And the key attribute of being able to do that is unlike any of the others, we enable pupil expansion. So that's the, the replication of the, say, a four millimeter pupil or a three millimeter pupil created by the light engine over a much broader area in front of the eye. And we do that with one grating. Uh, everybody else requires two. They require a, a, a turn grating, and then they actually require an output grating separately. Now, the advantage of doing both of those functions in one grating is that it reduces manufacturing tolerances. It allows relatively simple and predictable simulations to show and our customers what their custom gratings are going to and how they're going to behave. Uh, and what system trade-offs that they are going to um, to, to see, um, and also as well, we allow it allows a smaller form factor. There are certain form factors that would be really, really troublesome to accommodate with a turn grating plus a separate output grating. In our particular case, we can do all sorts of weird and wonderful shapes, aspect ratios, top-down side injection, shortly corner injection topologies. So it's very, very versatile and relatively easy to manufacture as well compared to some other types. Manufacturability really is an important factor to consider in addition to all these others regarding the actual quality of the display itself. It is. It keeps coming through time and time again that if, if any of these larger organizations have aspirations towards mass adoption, and you know, let's face it, they all have, then it needs to have a path to being able to be produced in large quantities. And by that, that's hundreds of thousands, um, possibly a month. And the versatility of nano imprinting, which is what, what we use and what I suspect the other organizations use, enables that to be a reality. Um, and even if the, the particular type of nano imprinting that we all, uh, we all um, have, have adopted can't quite get to the hundreds of thousands per month, there are other technologies of nano imprinting um, that certainly can do. There's a, there's a route to scale this to very, very large numbers. Describe nano imprinting. It's a very straightforward and simple method where the, 
The effort is all up front. There's no question that the amount of effort required to create a design and then to have that design uh, formulated uh, in a hard copy on a, on a, on a piece of silicon, on a, a silicon wafer. So our structures are relatively straightforward. We have certain features in them that enable the level of control that we've got to be implemented. Uh, with a new design, we send the data off to one of our partners and they create a physical replica of the whole waveguide. So that is both the input grating where the light's coupled into and the output grating on a single master. That is, is then taken. And um, if it's going to be a master that's used for manufacture, it's then replicated either onto uh, either an eight inch or a 12 inch uh, it's called a working stamp. It's a, it's a lump of material. It's a piece of material that will have maybe between 10 replicas of the waveguide on it for, uh, for an 8-inch wafer or maybe even 25 to 30 in the case of a 12-inch wafer. And we'll choose the technology depending on the anticipated volume and the, um, and the, the lead time that is required. Our 8-inch process is more mature than the 12 so that would be the one that we would we would advocate if if people wanted waveguides in the next uh, two or three months. So once the working stamp has been created, and in our particular technology, it is literally replicas on a relatively flexible foil, and that foil is held in contact with a glass wafer. The wafer in our case varies between depending on application between point. 325 millimeters up to a millimeter thick. And that wafer has previously had a, a resin spun on onto it that has, um, it's been baked. So it's sort of like in a gelatinous sort of consistency. Then the working stamp is held down onto it and it's, uh, there's a roller that literally squeegees over it. It sounds, it, it's more akin to silk screen printing than any other technology I've actually seen. It's quite bizarre that something as, as fundamental and apparently basic as that can actually transfer nanometric features from one medium to the other. The wafer and resin is then illuminated with ultraviolet, which uh, hardens the resin. And then we lift the mask off, the working stamp off, uh, leaving behind hopefully uh, 10 perfect replicas of the, of the master. Uh, they go away then to be to be cut into the waveguide shape. Um, and then in the case of a two or a three stack, they're stacked together to form a complete waveguide. They come back to the UK or they are tested at our manufacturing partner um, at Gore-Tec who are in China. So that's the complete life cycle, very fast. Once the upfront work is done, it's very cost-effective and swift. What are the implications of of the sort of approach you're talking about within kind of the differentiating factor where you don't need as many gratings, you know, this the second kind of grating in order to to do the magic that's happening inside that waveguide, which is basically to ingest and then to transmit and then to bounce out all the photons that are in it, while also replicating, as you know, replicating the pupils, which mean, meaning making it easier to see regardless of where your eye is behind the display within a certain area. What are the implications of kind of your approach Maybe as it re as regards the manufacturing process, or even as it regards the input on the display side, it comes back to the same 
figure of merit um, of iBox size, really. In, in order to keep the light engines down to a reasonable size, we normally try to limit the size of the of the of the last element in the light engine to about four millimeters thereabouts. So it's it's quite small. But of course, if that was communicated along a waveguide and then directed into the eye using a um, a reflective waveguide or any other form of um, of change of direction type of structure the eye box will be tiny. You would literally have to align your pupil again with the, the direction that the, 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 the pupil was radiating the, the, the rays from. It, it, again, a similar situation to North. It's not really a, a tangible means of providing a display that will fit a group of people. So we have to somehow be able to replicate that pupil over an area in front of the eye. Uh, the idea being that the pupils are close enough together that the human pupil will intercept uh, photons from two or three of them, maybe. And we have to preserve the, the imaging nature in each one of those pupils so that it doesn't matter which pupil the human eye um, overlaps and integrates the energy from, you still see a sharp, a sharp image. So for us, Pupil replication is a key attribute of any near eye display. It's the only way that you're going to get a small light engine and a large eye box. And we believe that we have the most versatile and adaptable way of achieving that eye box in a consistent way. We can predict very accurately what efficiency we will get with a particular eye box. Um, we can predict what size of grating we want to achieve a particular eye box. And we could communicate that to the customer and explain to them the implications. If they want a very large eye box with a very large field of view, the efficiency is going to be low and the waveguide is going to be large and it's going to be expensive to make because you're not going to get as many on a wafer. So we've, we've got some very good communication tools to show our customers to explain uh, these, these different trade-offs. Although to be fair, customers in general now are significantly more aware than they were even a year ago about these the, the, these trade-offs. It wasn't unusual for people to want things that were physically unrealizable a year ago, whereas as now that's very uncommon. Um, certainly our engineering partners in, in, uh, with, with our customers have, uh, are very, very capable and understand the limits now very, very well. So it's rare that we're actually asked to do something that is is beyond the stretch of, of reality. Yep. So the, the system integrators, the people who are actually making the AR rigs themselves, are more educated about what's possible within the set of technologies that people are using today. Yeah, significantly so. Significantly so. What's the ideal sort of light engine for your waveguide solution? That largely depends on the, the, notional, field of, the, the notional field of view. One of the attributes that we've not mentioned is the number of pixels per degree subtended at the eye. So this is all down to, um, let's cast a, a comment back to, to a VR display. Certainly the older generation VR displays where the, where the panels didn't have a particularly high pixel density, yet the optical systems were stretching those pixels over 110, 120 degrees. Individual pixels were self-evident. You could really see them quite 
clearly and detracted from the from the overall experience. In AR, that's emphatically what we don't want. And it's sort of almost self-limiting because we can't generate 110, 120 degree field of view. There's been a sweet spot of around 40 degrees in our particular case that we established um, as long ago as two years. And there's a particular resolution display, 720p display, where if that is used in conjunction with a 40 degree diagonal field of view, 16 to nine aspect ratio, you get around 35 pixels per degree, which is below what the theoretical human resolution is of the eye, which is around about 60. Uh, but for most people, certainly I can't, re- I can't resolve individual pixels at 35 pixels per degree. So that's almost formed like a technological sweet spot for us. A 720p DLP display at 40 degrees gives us high brightness, decent uh, color saturation, decent contrast in a panel technology that we know and understand. Where it gets difficult is when you move up above 40 degrees. So if you move to 60 degrees, for example, and you try to use a 720p panel, you've instantly pulled the pixels apart and you may be getting 20, maybe even 15 pixels per degree, which is just inadequate. You can see the pixels very, very easily. And that's very undesirable. So I, I often have, have you know, imagined the technical discussions that went on at, um, at, at Microsoft you know, 18, 18 months ago when they were looking at a 52-degree diagonal and the choice was, well, what, just what light engine technologies are there out there? And uh, certainly uh, the, there's Elcos, but they have certain efficiency issues, not least that because they're devices that require um, a a, a polarized light. And for many reasons, LEDs are much more attractive to to use, which are non-polarized. You initially, you instantly have lost 50% of your, of your, of your energy that is irradiating the, the panel. So you're already on your back foot as far as efficiency is concerned with 1080, with a 1080p LCOS panel for 50, 55 degree plus waveguides. You can certainly um, achieve the, the, the pixels per degree, but it's not in an ideal uh, trade-off in other respects. So, you know, I'm sure that Microsoft must have gone through this in, in, in with great analytical diligence and worked out at the time of launch, i.e. now, that the, that the only likelihood of being able to achieve um, a high brightness, a very high luminance display required for high field of views together with, with a decent efficiency, together with decent resolution, they interpreted that the only choice they probably had was, was the scanning, uh, a scanning beam system, a scanning laser beam system. But they have pupil expansion. So they didn't have the same um, uh, limitations on eye box size that uh, that North have. So here we have this, you know, this distinct trade-off between uh, on the display side and its implications ultimately in the visual experience, which is you have a certain number of pixels on the panel. And mm-hmm. while we might be used to thinking about the quality of the display based on the number of pixels on the display, in the world of smart glasses, it's not quite a one-to-one translation. 
because each one of those pixels is spread across a certain field of view. And so the same number of pixels across a wider field of view means you have a lower effective resolution, a lower angular resolution, and vice versa. You could take a, a lot of pixels and put it in a small uh, field of view and you end up with a higher pixel density as you perceive it in your eye, a higher angular resolution, and it gets closer to this, this level where we cannot distinguish any pixels within that, that realm. I think you, you're noting on the angular resolution that kind of in the, the mid-30s or so right now, kind of given the 720p panel and the 40-degree field of view. And for perspective, I think the Magic Leap is maybe just a little bit less than that or around there in terms of their angular resolution. Maybe the HoloLens is just a little bit higher than that right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we we want to be in a position where we fully understand and have appraised every display technology, every light engine technology out there. So consequently, we we have programs and we're establishing partnerships on every type of device, whether it's photo, the, the, the classic photo uh, reflective light engines that we're presently using. Um, so we have both in-house LCOS and DMD designs of varying, varying fields of view. Um, all work very, very nicely, but none of them at the higher field of views can achieve the, the simple level of luminance that's required in order to compete with, with daylight. Um, we're, we've looked at uh, OLEDs, um, which are great from a resolution point of view, but they're probably two to three orders of magnitude um, too dim in order to use in a, um, in a, in a wave-guided uh, environment. Micro LEDs, which are looking very hopeful in the two-year time frame, don't presently exist in an RGB format at uh, anything like an, even a 720 or 1080p resolution, single color green, great. Um, and they are approaching the levels of, 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 uh, of brightness that would be extremely, extremely usable. So in the, the moderate to near term for these very high demand high field of view systems. I think perhaps micro LED is probably the, the technology that may prevail, but I and everybody else don't necessarily know that. So we have to cover all bases and, and we are. Micro LED, monochrome only, is what people are able to demonstrate at any reasonable pixel density. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge for, the, for those technologies to go from single color to, to full color as we want them ultimately to be in sort of consumer grade. Maybe it's fine for a military or certain industrial applications to have only one color. Yeah, absolutely. And there may well be, there may well be instances for, um, for consumer use, and we're seeing them already in, in some ski goggles and um, swim goggles, where single color is, is more than adequate. If you, if you only need to provide the, the most basic of information, the most basic of symbology, then single color can be, can be very effective. So right now, is your current focus of innovation at Wave Optics? If we think of all of these attributes of iBox, iRelief, which we actually have um, actually spoken about, which is the the distance that the that the waveguide is from the nearest part of, of, of the eye, that too can have a profound effect on the um, on the size of the output grating and the overall efficiency of, of the structure because if the eye relief is large that means it's it's a long way away from the eye may mean you can wear conventional eyewear underneath but the grating in order to be able to subtend a particular 
field of view to the eye is going to get significantly bigger as the eye relief goes up and up and up and therefore the efficiency goes down. So if we take eye box size, eye relief, field of view, efficiency, color uniformity, field luminance, field uniformity, all of these key things that collectively describe contrast and miscontrast, sharpness in, in the MTF, the modulation transfer function of the computer generated image, put all of these things together, you get an envelope of parameters um, that is really controlled by the technology that you use. And by technology, I mean, fundamentally, the refractive index of the glass and the refractive index of the resin that is used to fabricate the waveguides. And there is a tendency for everybody to go up and up and up. Um, and of course, we, we're the same. We are wanting to increase the refractive index of the glass. Um, it creates additional manufacturing fabrication challenges. It also creates and introduces some new parameters of absorption in blue as you go up to higher refractive indices that you don't see lower down. So that's pushing the boundary to the high refractive in, in indices, but also we're looking at pushing the boundaries the other way to, um, uh, to maybe 1.5, 1.6 refractive index, but having our structures replicated in straight into plastic. Mm, plastic, aiming for lightweight. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it just so happens that our structures are shaped in a particular way that lend themselves uh, very well to 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 a molding type of approach, um, as, a, as and also stamping. In effect, nanoimprinting that we do now is a stamping process. So we are looking at uh, uh, looking at lower fields of views in in plastic. So that's the the boundaries is pushing the absolute boundary um, to higher and higher levels from a refractive index and resin point of view but also accepting that there may well be applications lower down that could be best uh, fulfilled with plastic. And what is the implication on having a curved lens? Today, all the waveguides that I've seen have been are perfectly straight. Is there a path to having a curved waveguide that's kind of more conforming to the, the shape of the head? Well, that would be, be tremendous, <laughs> but it's um, many have tried and many have failed. I wouldn't say that we have tried in a particularly purposeful way it's something that we've we've thought about and certainly with the plastic it is something that we will be evaluating it brings its own challenges in terms of planarity of the glass with any waveguide technology planarity of the two faces is very very important and to achieve like a tangential planarity at any point on that curved waveguide would be would be quite difficult um, we may have to resort to pre-launch distortion or even real-time distortion correction. Um, there's all sorts of things that we are looking at with intelligent light engines that may, just may, make a curved waveguide um, approachable. Very nice. I think that'll be amazing when it happens, but clearly not necessary yeah. for us to begin to realize the broader potential of smart glasses. As you look ahead, who or what in this industry makes you the most nervous? It's not really what or who I know that makes me nervous. Um, you can look around the industry and you get good sample and good data points for what is available quite publicly. And I wouldn't say there's any of those things that are aimed at the, at the open market or even the closed market. 
um, I think that our devices stand up uh, very, very well to the certainly to, the, to, to Magic Leap and, and the HoloLens uh, waveguides. Um, our mix of attributes is always complemented. But there is always that feeling of the first time that you walk onto an exhibition hall at CS or Photonics West or one of the big exhibitions that there's somebody going to be there that you think, oh, that could be a problem. Now, it's not happened yet, um, and touch wood, it's not going to happen in 2020, but it's it's those organisations that may have seen something relatively simplistic that we may have dismissed. If we've dismissed it, in all likelihood, every other organisation, certainly that I know, have also dismissed it, but it may happen. And it's probably that that makes me the most nervous is actually missing something to repurpose an existing technology that somebody else sees as being viable. That's probably probably the, the thing that makes me most nervous as a CTO. Mm. You hold your breath every time you go to one of these major industry yeah. conferences, just for a little yeah. bit there at the beginning. A bit, a little bit, yeah. yeah. So I'd like to go back maybe and dig into your past. You noted that you had worked at Daiquiri prior to this. And before that, you came into Daiquiri because you were a co-founder and chief science officer at a company Daiquiri had acquired called 1066 Labs. But maybe we can, you can describe a little bit kind of the, the background here, at least as it relates to the string of, of companies and technologies. What was 1066 Labs creating and how did it fit in with Daiquiri's plans? Well, a bit of history about 1066. This was a technology consultancy company that David Hayes and I had um, probably started about 10 years ago, something like that, maybe 12 years ago. And it was a... It, it was an interesting mix in that um, as a relatively young and aggressive organization, we, we, we did have that thing in our head that's not sometimes not so good, which is in inverted commas, it, well, how hard can it be? You know, you embark upon something with that. Well, how hard can that be? And it's only when you actually get engaged and then you find out all of the multidisciplinary levels of technology that is required that you realize, well, actually it is really quite hard. And we actually built a business on that premise. Um, there was a, a number of activities that we did where other organizations had tried and failed and we were approached to see if we could do any, any better. And one of these, for example, was um, at the time that we had, uh, we were showing around a technology tablet demonstrator. Now this preceded the, um, the, the, even the first generation iPad by about 10 months. The upshot of this was uh, McLaren, the car, uh, the, the Formula One company. They'd, had, they'd developed one road car previously in collaboration with Mercedes, but they were developing their own indigenous car called the MP412C. Um, and this was the first design. And they too, I think they too would admit that when they looked at the in-car uh, infotainment system, they thought, you know, we can create a, a twin turbocharged 600 horsepower engine, um, surely creating a piece of electronics that can display a map, you know, how hard can that be? That they fell into the same, how hard can it be uh, stumbling block? And they left it a little bit late in order to have something developed because they didn't want to repurpose something that one of the 
other organizations um, like Clarion or Alpine or these others that rebrand their stuff for the OEM car manufacturers. They didn't want that. They wanted every every part that went into the car to have the McLaren DNA in it. And effectively, that means it had to be designed from scratch. They probably had been through about three other suppliers by the time these photographs were doing the rounds on the internet showing this tablet. And their view, what they wanted was an internet tablet that could be fitted into a car. And I got a call out of the blue and asked to go to do a presentation about our tablets at the McLaren Technology Centre in Woking in, in the UK, which I dutifully um, went off and, and did and was absolutely, it's an extraordinary experience actually going there, but that's a completely separate topic. And over a period of about three months of extreme due diligence, they appointed us to be their vendor for their in-car in, in infotainment system. That was one example. And this is really just to give you a, a sort of a, a feel of the, the breadth of, of things that we, that we were doing at the time. We had two video phone projects going on at the same time, all based on Tegra, but again, mixed technologies, both optical and electronic. And we had also had a long established relationship with a very large American multinational that I, I can't really name at the moment. And um, we started doing some work for them on augmented reality. And we learned over the, the period of about five to seven years um, of working very, very deeply in all aspects of augmented reality, we learned a lot about the do's, the don'ts, the how's, the how's not to of building displays, but also systems and system integration. And when that relationship ended, we were left with a huge and beneficial legacy of know-how, knowledge that uh, Dacry was recommended to get in contact with us, that they were having some difficulties in the electrical and optical integration um, of the very first Dacry Smart Helmet. And um, the delegation of them came over to look at what we did and um, we spent two or three days with them explaining all the things that were wrong with the initial, the initial versions of the Smart Helmet. And then they acquired us and it was um, as simple as that. And uh, uh, the previously mentioned David, he, uh, became executive VP of hardware and he uh, represented 10, what was 1066 Labs. Um, Dacry assumed all of the responsibilities for all of the staff and the laboratories and the equipment that we accumulated as 1066. And there was uh, an increasing role in, in Los Angeles at, uh, at the head office that David took. I remained largely back in, in the UK and set up uh, a research and development group purely to look at optical technologies. So it's you know the same the same now at the time. Uh, the, the optics that were chosen by Dacry were were Lumus, were reflective uh, waveguide technology. At the time, being the uh, the best balance between price, uh, performance, availability, etc. And they were integrated into the Dacry Smart helmet and the Dacry Smart glasses. And we were working on all sorts of different um, dis 
display technologies, including including pinhole waveguides, including pinhole reflector systems, um, and we just accumulated a huge amount of again system know-how associated with light energy design and waveguide design, and how imperative it is to have the two things designed in complete concert. It's we have done waveguide designs where the light engine has been designed and developed by a third party and it's gone very well um, in one or two cases. It's also not been as successful in others and it's certainly in the past 18 months it's been a lesson that if we can take ownership of the whole electrical to optical transfer function that is much better than splitting it and us just providing waveguides. We get a, a much higher level of client satisfaction if we can provide them a well-documented electrical interface and a well-documented optical interface to the eye. And, and, and that's, that's, that's our goal. When you were at Daiquiri, you noted that the challenges there of really matching nicely the display system with the optic system. And by designing them both at the same time, you can really create the, the most optimal end-to-end -end sort of experience. And the technologies that you were leveraging then went into both the Daiquiri Smart Helmet and the Daiquiri Smart Glasses. Where is it? that Daiquiri as a company ended up falling short? Like any very fast-changing organization, I think there was a number, of, uh, a number of areas. I think the first was perhaps overcomplicating the, the design, that if a proper product analysis had taken place where it could be demonstrated there's a real and practical need called out for by target customers... I think a smart helmet and or smart glasses could have been produced with a substantially reduced set of functions that would have led to a re substantially reduced demand on the processor that would have led to a markedly reduced demand on the battery. And I think that that was potentially one. Um, and I think that the ultimate demise of, of DACU was perhaps scaling up in anticipation of the market actually being there. And when the market didn't evolve at the speed and the nature that they, that they thought, um, there was a very large and very expensive company that was there with, with minimal sales, which was regrettable because the colleagues at Daiquiri were, you know, were super. They really were. They'd assembled a very hot team of engineers and scientists and, and managers and, you know, I look, I look back at my time at Daiquiri very fondly. It's a great shame. Tried to do too much too fast, fundamentally. Too much too fast, too soon. Um, perhaps without as enough hard-nosed product uh, requirements as they, as, as they perhaps they should have done. Yeah. Perhaps anticipating what customers might want rather than actually finding out what they really did want. And that coupled with, that was fixed latterly. Um, and interestingly, that Microsoft have adopted a very similar business model of selling software as a service for field support and uh, that type of application. Um, that was really quite transformational for Daiquiri. I think that there was a, unfortunately it came a little bit too late, that they realized that however good the smart helmet and the smart glasses were from a hardware perspective, no AR device really does very much of, of, of any great use unless it either has content or some application in, in, in the case of some industrial context that gives business benefit. And that was only realized quite quite late on in the 
in the the, the daiquiri the daiquiri work you know maybe only in the past in, in the last year to 18 months mm. Mm. lots of lessons to be learned as we Definitely, deconstruct yeah. that one but one of, one yeah. of the things i i guess that that stood out for me was that a key former daiquiri leader took some of those early lessons and went off and created realware and realware seems to be succeeding where daiquiri fell short why do you think that is i think it may well uh, refer back to the statements I've just made, actually, that the real-world device is, is very simple. Um, it's not see-through, but it's beautifully engineered and it's fit for purpose um, that all of those things were brought together to create a product that people actually wanted. And I think that how well they're doing is a testament to that. They, they did a very, they, they've done and are doing a very good job. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time talking here this uh, today about the optics display, kind of how those marry together, the overall visual experience. Where else are the kind of the key missing ingredients to enable mass market AR smart glasses? It depends. The answer to that question depends on the on the the level of complexity of the glasses. If they're smart glasses uh, with small field of view that are effectively information type dis, dis, displays. The, probably the only real deficient area at the moment is in sub-miniature light engines that are bright enough to, um, to be of practical use. The waveguides um, uh, that we sell now are certainly fit for purpose for a whole range of different application areas. It's still the light engine, probably any individual sector that is still the, the limiting factor. It all, they always need to be brighter, smaller, and more efficient. And that's particularly important in the very small form factor glasses. If you step up a little uh, to those that require some form of um, um, visual inertial type tracking systems, then we're getting into then another area of technology that is just maybe just as demanding as, as the optics. Um, not my field, but certainly looking at some of the challenges that I'm aware of, that the whole notion of tracking is, is quite complex. Um, now, we're aware of that from the point of view of, of system latency. We, we know as contributors to the overall hardware system budget that the photon to latency uh, sorry, the photon to motion latency figure for hardware is a crucial component in being able to create software-based control systems that will allow um, images to be pinned without jitter in space, um, a typical use case for, for, for tracking, or allow that image to be um, to move with the head, for example, as well. So certainly that we are involved heavily in that type of activity as, as well as a contributor to one of the other areas that are challenging but if i had to identify three and they're all linked together one would be the optics and the inefficiency of the light engine the second is the the compute required for um, any form of visual inertial um, tracking and then the third one is the battery technology support the aforementioned it's um it, it's a big ask at the moment to get any of these things into a a, gla a true glasses like form factor yeah, looking forward, if you could project, mm -hmm. 
how long do you think it'll take until we have some reasonable initial basis of smart glasses out there? I'm kind of speaking maybe to software developers of the world to the extent that there's some sort of reasonable diversity within the hardware platforms themselves. But how long do you think it'll take until we have 10 million or so smart glass users? I think if you bundle all of the different fields of view from the narrowest up to the broadest into, into that summation, because there will be, there are organizations that are, that feel it is quite adequate, quite okay to have a, a pair of glasses that is a, a relatively limited functionality, provided it can provide decent, sharp, bright, colored information type symbology. And then there are other organizations whose business models and perhaps previous products don't allow that. They need something significantly more sophisticated. And I think the former will and be anticipated. I think that the, the, the latter will be a little bit further, further behind. But adding everything together to get to a, a, a 10 million user point of view, I think well, that'll be there in, in 18 to 24 months. That's very soon. Yeah, it's soon. Very cool. Let's wrap up with a few enlightening round questions. What commonly held belief about spatial computing do you disagree with? I dis- what do I disagree with? I think I disagree with aspects of spatial computing and, and, and particularly the subset of augmented reality in that it's going to be the, the solve-all panacea for all problems. That I think one of, the, one of the cool things about AR and also one of the, um, the, the sometimes the leveling things about AR is that everybody can take an example in their own life and conceive of something that would be boosted or made more effective or efficient or be bettered by having this ability to compute, to overlay information on top of the real world. Um, Often when I explain what I do, people go, gosh, that's cool. Couldn't you do this, this, and this, and this? And often the answer is, yeah, absolutely, you could do that. But increasingly, I'm finding myself, and even in my own ideas, my own notions, thinking, you know what, there are probably easier and better ways of doing it that don't require the level of sophistication of, of considering that everything around you in space is a computational device. Sometimes it's nice to have something that's personal, um, something, you know, self, smartphones are self-evidence of that, that it's, it's something that you don't necessarily want, something that's generic, that's shared around by everybody. It's, it, it, it's yours. Um, but also as well, I think just going back to this general idea, there's a lot of ideas, I think, floating around for use cases for, for AR and... Um, and these other similar topics that probably are best maybe done with a phone or an iPad, possibly phone or a tablet, I would think. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it definitely does feel like we're trying to cram more than what makes sense into the set of experiences that are possible given the current state of the hardware. Oh yeah. Yeah. We've all, we've all been guilty of, yeah. well, not just even just this current state of the hardware. Maybe, well, yeah, perhaps that is actually the caveat with the current state of, of the hardware. Sure. If we had this um, glass, the, you know, the epitome of um, a smart glasses type weightless structure that a lot of us actually wear in our day-to-day lives, then yes, you could argue that many, many things could be very effectively done um, using using that technology. But I think it'll be a while before there's a migration, a, um, a ubiquity of solutions that lend themselves to that. I think we'll go through a period of rationalization where simple planar 2D imagery is um, is good enough i think you know we've all we've all been guilty of thinking about the coolest idea in the world for for 
AR and, and spatial computing and then really you, you, you come back to, down to ground and you think, well, actually, there's probably easier ways. Yeah, for sure. Of the potential uses of AR, which one are you most excited about? I think at the moment, the one that I'm most excited about is the one that is closest to showing a real utility and a business benefit, and that's field, field service. That there's certainly got to any of the exhibition, and it certainly was pioneered by Daiquiri, and it's been um, certainly picked up by Microsoft with HoloLens, and there are so many organizations at exhibitions that are offering AR solutions for uh, for field service, for example. And I think that's going to be one of the earliest applications for the more sophisticated glasses that have the full range of visual inertial tracking systems. There are a lot of organizations out there that are um, creating tools for augmenting, improving the, the, the life of a, of a worker. Um, and I think there's some clear and documented business benefits and returns and investments that quite a lot of studies are now showing. So I think that is something that is of immediate interest. I think longer term, I would think medical applications are the next thing that I think would be the most substantive, varying from um, enhancements of simulations that at the moment, um, a lot of surgical training is done on um, smart torsos that I can't think of a better word really that they're they, they're torsos that are that have some level of compliance to them but they're telemetered up and they can have synthetic heartbeats created and they can uh, simulate vital signs the failure of vital signs through a computer uh, console but a lot of the actions that the training surgeons do are simulated with their fingers or they touched or they state them whereas I think if there was a more visual context where there could be visual images overlaid on that torso, I think that would be um, would be really quite interesting. And uh, an enhancement to that is uh, remotely supervised surgery, where people really are doing surgery, uh, perhaps on skilled battlefield um, medics, for example, um, that don't necessarily have any direct experience of surgery that is being supervised remotely by an experienced surge- surgeon. 2,000 miles away and being guided on a on a on exactly what to do to correct a, a life-threatening situation. I, I really can see things like that um, uh, being of, of of real real utility. And of course, close to home with paramedics, again the same. That if they find themselves uh, faced with something that um, is beyond their level of experience, then the surgeon back at the at, at the hospital can see what they see from a third third person perspective and mark on their display what they need to do where they need to maybe cut or any form of invasive type of uh, of action on that patient so i think that you know these are things where i think that there there could well be real utility in the in in the the two to five year time frame in fact i know there are experiments going on now in all of those you know those areas Um, and i think it won't be long before they're they're well and truly effective. This idea that kind of the, this next iteration of personal compute is kind of, I imagine smart glasses to be from you know, the beginning of the desktop computer to uh, integrating those computers together with the internet to having the computer in your pocket always with you to now having them on your face. This idea that 
that communication in this way, this notion of telepresence, this notion of bringing some remote expertise to bear on some local problem that you're having, it's going to tap into another human's brain to give them your perspective and to allow them to superimpose their insights directly on your field of view. This notion feels very important and very powerful as an early use case for smart glasses. And we might only see it in the enterprise for quite some time. Like that might be the go-to enterprise use case in the early days. And it might be years before we find these ultimately smart glasses truly useful in the consumer realm. But I'm also very excited about the pending pervasiveness of this idea of remote expertise that smart glasses enables. It's very cool. Yeah, ex exactly. And I think it, it spreads across all industries as well. There, there are always examples everywhere, whether it's in dentistry, medicine, engineering, where there is someone less experienced doing something that really would benefit from the mentoring of somebody else. Um, a one-to-many type mentoring like that, I think, would be, it would be really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. What book have you read recently that you found to be deeply insightful or profound? I'm going to exclude electronic books. I'm actually going to answer this from the perspective of it, of it being a real book with paper because that doesn't really happen very often. And this was a book I probably read 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. And it was a, it's a book called Carrying the Fire. And it's a book written by Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11. And I, I was a visitor at the Kennedy Space Center and in the gift shop and just picked up a handful of books. And it was one of the first, probably, yeah, probably the first actually truly inspiring book I've ever I've ever read, not least because it was it was a mix of all things that I was involved in at, at the time, not, not least at several orders of magnitude more complexity and difficulty than I was involved in, but the engineers and the scientists in all of those different disciplines doing something that was people thought was impossible in 10 years. Um, but they did it, and not just scientists, engineers, but test pilots and all of the support staff that they, they didn't know how when they committed to, to, to place, um, when, when JFK committed to, to, to place someone on the, um, on the moon inside the decade, they'd only just launched Alan Shepard into suborbital um, sub flight. It, it, the statement was really quite profound. And the, the ability of all of those people to do that was quite extraordinary. And carrying the fire was a first-hand view of, of, of that from the early 60s all the way through to the late 60s when Collins um, actually flew on, on Apollo 11 and, and orbited the moon. And it, it's a marvellous capture of all of the dynamics, of all of those different things, both from the, the, the bravery and the spirit of the astronauts through to the innovation and the problem-solving um, of, uh, of the engineers and the flight directors of the time. Quite extraordinary things that... At the time, no one had a concept of, you know, we take um, timelines now and Gantt charts uh, as, as normal parts of our work. But at the time, no one, there'd never been a project big enough that would that require a project methodology. So uh, my understanding was that this was the start of the Gantt chart where all of the timelines were actually laid out and you could cons you could clearly see the the what deliverables were dependent on subsequent activities. And 
it was just a, a marvelous capture of all of all of those things. Um, pure Americana as well, actually. So it was, uh, yeah, I like that too. Yeah, very cool. If you could sit down and have coffee with your 25-year-old self, what advice would you share with 25-year-old Phil? I think it was something I'd probably share with, with quite a lot of young, um, young engineers and scientists now, and that would be to perhaps try to be imaginative, technically creative and agile. Um, certainly in the, at the time, the, when, when I was that age in the British edu, higher education system, that the formality of the education was really quite quite strong, that you were taught to think in a particular way. You were taught to, if you had a hypothesis, you had to prove it. You could just couldn't assume it, like any good scientist, that you had to show it and you had to show it from a different direction and you had to have a peer review and it had to have a level of rigour that would stand up to scrutiny. And, and, and it tends to, and it still does me, there's still a legacy of that there with me that sometimes... I still have to shake off because today in a super fast, agile, high-tech environment, that type of thinking doesn't necessarily lend, there's a role for it for sure. But if everybody thought like that, very little would actually get done in, in the tech companies that we, we all know. There has to be some transformational step or multiple steps in things that people have already, have always assumed that, a lot of scientists and engineers can't take that step. And it's largely, I think, due to uh, how, how they're taught and how, what experiences that they've had in the, the robustness and the rigidity of the, engineer, of the engineering tuition and system that they, um, that they have. And going back to when I was a university professor and I had a, a mix of higher education, of, of uh, MSCs and PhD students, you could even see exaggerated effects of that depending on where the individuals came from. Um, there were some countries, some origin countries, that were incredibly robust in uh, how their students should think. And then when they came to the UK uh, to do their PhDs, for example, we had to loosen it up a little bit because they, they were so rigid and robust. There was no technical creativity at all. And I still sometimes think that overall, we, those of us that come from that sort of academic background suffer from that a little bit. It's just that I've had it sort of beaten out of me over the past 20 years through being involved in uh, essential activities of, of, of companies that promise to do great things that are extremely hard. You just have to. You have to. Creativity, you have to push yourself because you have to accomplish some of those things in parallel. You still have to ultimately prove it with some rigor, but that proof may be coming out uh, later down in the production life cycle of that product. Surely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah got to be inventive. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share? Just that it's, it's been a really interesting walk through um, the evolution of, of, of my AR life, and uh, I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about those things and uh, about AR in general, about wave optics as well. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Where can people go to learn more about you and your efforts there at Wave Optics? Well, probably the two sources of, of both those things are my LinkedIn page. Um, that's easily found on the Wave Optics website, enhanceworld.com. Fantastic. Phil, thanks so much for this conversation. Nope. Thank you, Jason. Before you go, I want to tell you about the next episode. In it, I speak with Chen Ping Yu. Chen Ping is the founder and CEO at FIRE, an early stage startup seeking to revolutionize how people navigate and experience the world through cutting edge computer vision AI technology. 
Fire is creating an augmented reality navigation platform for driving to enhance driver safety, to facilitate more intuitive wayfinding, and to connect drivers with their surrounding environments. In this conversation, we dig into the origins of the company, as well as the problems they're solving and their unique approach. Chen Ping also shares stories from his experience at Y Combinator, and we discuss the challenges of handheld mobile AR. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss this or other great episodes. Until next time.